Welcome back to Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera, available everywhere all good podcasts are sold. I'm your party host, Dave Ryan, and I'm joined by the usual cast of wacky characters. First, he's a platforming prodigy. It's Mark Robinson. Mark, how are you? Speaking of wacky characters, I currently have Master Watto on my left monitor right now, and... I don't know. That's a gimmick that's kind of dead in the water on arrival, surely. Yeah, I haven't. I have yet to experience uh, to experience Master Watto on my screen. Uh, I have merely experienced him through Twitter and memes, and I- I'm not having it. It's there's not much more to it than that, really, yeah. to be honest. Uh, but yeah, I'm good. Um, I don't think we've had the 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 heat wave such that England's having at the moment. Thank Christ. No. Uh, I'm kind of hoping it stays that way. Yeah. Um. I. Yeah. It's like it's not. It's not cold by any stretch. Uh. The, no. the thing I'd prefer to get rid of, like I'd almost prefer dry the heat Brits. to the way. Yeah. Uh. Well, always that's on the wish list. But uh. No. The um. The kind of uh, my most hated kind of weather is when it's like twenty odd degrees Celsius, but it's still raining every couple of hours. <laughs> Just that real heavy kind of close sort of weather uh i i don't care for that at all and there's nothing you can really do because like it's it's, it's so weather. hot yeah it's so hot that you want to go like you know go for a walk or something like that but then like pisses rain every now and then um i was thankful that i got um uh i i got a kind of break where it was a nice day and i got to go out to, to wicklow during the week and uh eat some damn fine barbecue uh beside a lake and that was amazing um, oh, I can't remember what I had. It was like a half pound of brisket, a couple of barbecue sausages. It was, I was a whole good time. Um, God damn it. Now well, I'm we, we, we went um, to the, the Aran Islands. We was in Galway last weekend and we went over to the Aran Islands for, for, the, for the day. And we were quite lucky because as we landed, just, and it's like, because you take the, the ferry and it's about a 40 minute ferry. And on both sides of it, you could see on the other side, like where you were going, there was clear skies, clear skies. It looked lovely. But for whatever reason, about 20 minutes into the journey, there's just this fog that you go into that just kind of comes out of nowhere. And it's kind of like, and it happens in Paper Mario. There's uh, when you go into the Great Sea for the first time, like you get to a point and there's just this fog that it's kind of like it's a it's a block that you can't go past until you have like IMX or whatever. Um, to kind of get you on the critical path. And it kind of was like that. You just go into this fog that just kind of comes out of nowhere. And it happened on both sides. But we got to the other side, torrential downpour for about five minutes. And then we were quite lucky for the rest of the day. Uh, And it was actually quite a lovely day. And it was like that optimum where it's bright and it's sunny, but it's cool. Uh, Which there's like three days of the year where that happens, which is like optimum mark temperature. But (laughs) alas. I just picture it being like you're out there in the middle of the fog. And... uh... You're just kind of sidling up to the guy who's trying to like sail the the little ferry over to the Aran Islands. You're like, don't worry, mate. It's just like Paper Mario. It'll be fine. <laughs> no, I've been like, look, I played Wind Waker. All right. <laughs> I would love to see the look on the face of a man, a riggered west of Ireland, a seafaring man, when this guy walks up to him and says, "It's just like Paper Mario. It's gonna be fine." Can I, can I just say as well, um, hearing Irish spoken between two people out in the wild that isn't, you know, done for academic purposes, like, kind of throws me off, because I've, I've heard it maybe, like, once or twice before. Like, other than just people saying, oh, yeah, I learned Irish in school, blah, 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 blah. Like, I, you never just hear conversational Irish, and it's, it's crazy. They were absolutely talking about you, by the way. <laughs> There's two... <laughs> 
<laughs> There's if you heard them say Sassanak at some point, then they definitely were talking about you. Uh, that's Englishman. Sassanak. <laughs> um, Sassanak, yeah. Okay. Um, if I was gonna say, yeah, there's there's like two major kinds of people that that will use Irish conversationally, and it's people in those Gaeltacht regions, like in Connemara or or down in Kerry as well, um, or teachers. Teachers will use conversational Irish because the children won't understand them, so that they can talk to each other. Um, more so primary teachers because primary teachers aren't allowed to be primary teachers here unless they pass a test of oral competency in Irish. Um, secondary school teachers not so much um, but yeah that's that's kind of it's like a, a little code or something like that for them uh, you may have heard the other voice on the line and, and that is the Roman Reigns of Audio the ghost of Jacques Lazelle how are you my friend? yeah not too bad uh, I, I died in a bizarre gardening accident that's why I'm a ghost <laughs> dozens of people spontaneously combust every single year Jack <laughs> it kills over two Britons a year uh, spontaneous combustion <laughs> I've heard so yeah yeah, good week. You've been watching some mockumentary. <laughs> yeah, I had a bit of Spinal Tap on uh, just just this morning, actually, when I woke up. It's a great way to wake up on a Saturday. It's just wake up. Don't actually even get out of bed. Just pull over your favourite device and just put on Spinal Tap and just sit there and piss yourself for like 85 minutes. Yeah, we're, we're going to be talking more about this uh, ourselves later, so I don't want to kind of like uh, bury the lead too much, but... um. It's it's amazing rewatching it. How like how many of the most like iconic gags are in like the first forty minutes? You know, I was saying to you yesterday that the bizarre gardening accident line is maybe two minutes into the movie, and uh, it goes up to eleven is maybe half an hour into the movie. It's just like it it just comes thick and fast. I mean, mate, it's all the way through. Like one of the last things you you hear is like, he goes to him like, "What would you put on your gravestone?" And he's like. Here lies David St. Hubbins. And why not? (laughs) 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 As if if someone has some sort of, like, issue with him being there, uh, dead in the ground. But yes, what what a motion picture that is. How do we... We were kind of talking before we got on the air a bit, like our favorite kind of mock documentaries and this being the real pioneer of the genre. Uh, You got any other favorites, Mark? Honestly, the only ones I can remember off the top of my head is that and Popstar. Um, yeah. There's probably a bunch more that you two will be able to reference, but like, mm. you put me on the spot and my brain can't come up with any. <laughs> so the, the, the two I think of a lot that if you haven't seen them are, are very much worth uh, checking out are both Christopher Guest movies as well, speaking of Spinal Tap, uh, and it's Best in Show, which is the, uh, the, the mock documentary set at a, a Westminster-style dog show. Uh, and it's incredible it's the usual cast of characters you get in a christopher guest movie like eugene levy and Catherine o'hara and fred willard and stuff like that it's just it's absolutely fantastic Uh, and then similarly pretty much that whole same crew in another christopher guest movie called a mighty wind which is about like a reunion of famous folk musicians uh absolutely just great stuff are there any that are coming off the top of your head jack uh there's a really good like gangster rap version of uh this is spinal tap called fear of a black hat um and and i can't i can't say so if so you know the group nwa uh so their group name is nwh and obviously i won't say the first what the first letter stands for but it stands for that with hats instead of with attitudes (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like a public enemy NWA kind of piss take thing. Uh, like it, it's very good. Uh, I I would thoroughly recommend that. I guess I I don't know. So like Borat, I guess you could throw in there if that counts. But it yeah, I guess Borat kind of counts. It's yeah. sort of in there. Um, mm, does I I. I guess um, Blair Witch counts as well. Like Blair Witch and Cloverfield, yeah. they probably count. See, I don't know if you if you go mockumentary. They th- those to me are the found footage films. Yeah. You know that's the that's the categorization that a lot of well horror fans anyway would would use for those. Um, there's one I was thinking of there, the the Netflix show American Vandal. Yeah, that's very good. Oh, um, uh, I haven't I haven't seen season two of that. Both but. Andy Samberg HBO things. So you've got the Seven Days in Hell and yes. Tour de Pharmacy, and they are amazing. In fact, actually, now I think about it, Andy Samberg is kind of master of of the mockumentary. Yeah, him, him, and Chris. He's like the current day Christopher Guest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, if, right from like down to sketches of like Mark Wahlberg talks to animals. Yeah. <laughs> hey, chicken. How's it going? Oh, hey, dog. What's going on? I made Entourage. What about you? <laughs> There's also one. I remember seeing um, one that like I thought was kind of underrated. I'm looking at like Metacritic Metascores now and people don't seem to like it. But I remember on uh, Irish TV, I, I saw it at like maybe 10 o'clock one night. Uh, this movie, Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is a mockumentary that takes place at a beauty pageant where... Um, one of the the prospective beauty queens seems to be murdering all her competition as this documentary is being filmed um and i i thought it was great um at the time i haven't seen it since i must actually try and rewatch it but like kirsten dunst is in it denise richards is in it alison janney is in it kirsty alley is in it um britney murphy is in it amy adams before anyone really knew who she was because it's like a 1999 movie um yeah, I like. I remember really enjoying that. It's a, it's a kind of, I think it's an easy genre of film to do very lazily. You know? Oh, I just completely like. I I just googled it to see if there's anything that I liked and I missed as you were talking next. I've never seen Drop Dead Gorgeous, um, and that does sound yeah. pretty awesome. But I couldn't believe I, I didn't think of what we do in the shadows. Oh yeah, that is yeah so good. Um, but yeah, that's probably the only other one. Of the ones that I kind of just briefly flick through here, like, because you know you don't want to miss anything. You know, I'd be editing this show and I'd be like, oh my god, do I have to post edit in myself in a you know a different time of day, a different tone of voice? <laughs> Probably going, like, like I, the Atlanta Falcons, <laughs> the Denver Broncos. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, exactly. But yeah, what we do in the shadows is great too. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. Oh, I, I guess because because I looked it up. Fucking Trailer Park Boys is a mockumentary TV series, and it's one of my favorite comedies of all yeah, time. Yeah, I guess uh, like all of those Ricky Gervais things, uh, The Office, and yeah, like the extras. I don't know. If... Modern Family is technically a mockumentary. Yeah. Life. Do you know what Life is Short is? Probably my f- Life is Short is my favorite of the Gervais things. Um, uh, I love that. I just think well, my extras is probably my favorite Gervais thing, but I don't really like him. I don't like him, but I, I like the things to, that he does. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. I like the things that Stephen Merchant does with him. <laughs> oh man, that seriously, the just for life is short. The whole the scene where it's just Merchant and him, Warwick Davis in the office, and Johnny Depp comes in to defend Tim Allen after after Ricky Gervais shredded him at the Golden Globes is probably one of the funniest things. And and the Liam Neeson. Him trying to be a stand-up comedian and just deadpanning jokes oh, yeah. about cancer and how aggressive it well, is. He's very good at making lists. Yeah, <laughs> it's just <laughs> that is very good. Top draw. Anyway, we've fallen down somewhat of a rabbit hole here. Yeah. Let, let's snap ourselves out of it and talk about some some cool media that we've been experiencing recently. I mean, this is cool media, and we can't mention Gervais and Merchant without mentioning the greatest celebrity cameo of all time, and that's Patrick Stewart in Extras. <laughs> yeah, he was so good in that. I don't know though. Do you prefer him to? I, I'm I'm trying to think. Do you prefer him to? I guess mine would have been Depp before Depp became a little bit more of a problematic person. But uh, Liam ne- Liam Neeson's cameo or Patrick uh, Stewart's cameo? What do we think? I it's Stewart for me all day yeah. long. I, I'm a go. <laughs> but by then I've seen everything. <laughs> yeah, I'm a go Neeson. I just think I think the way Neeson played that scene was was genius. Like it, it, it aside from being very funny, he just acted it so perfectly like acted out a version of what people would expect him to be not like exactly like extras but in terms of um actors and actresses kind of being a version of themselves uh i've been watching a bunch of between two ferns uh, recently and um more importantly than that i've been watching like the bloopers and the outtakes of it as well because watching them try to listen to what zach says about them and i'm guessing a lot of it they don't know is coming beforehand uh, and just like the, like there was something that they said or Zach said to John Hamm, and he was gone for about two minutes just laughing. And it's I I I'd never watched it uh, until recently. Uh, it's something that uh, Maria's watched a lot of, um, and I haven't seen the film yet. But I was going to say that plan on doing this weekend. The film you've just inadvertently led me towards another mockumentary because the the film is kind of a mockumentary about him making the show, and he in the film he kind of plays the person. He plays a version of Zach Galifianakis that is dead serious about his talk show, like not that he's doing it as a joke. So that is, in a way, a mockumentary with a mock talk show at the centre of it. And I will say as well, uh, whatever part of the funny bone it tickles, like one of the funniest things in the world is always people trying to do a skit but corpsing. Um, when people crack, like you'll get um montages on YouTube of people who are doing SNL skits that completely crack. Jimmy Fallon um, in every single one. Jim, J- Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, all the time. Um, there's the one. It, it, there's when, <laughs> when uh they used to do the Stefan skits, and Bill Hader would just crack all the time doing them because John Mulaney would just throw in. Uh, an extra line on a card that he hadn't told him about before. <laughs> um, I was trying to think another great one. Oh no, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about the stuff we have here on the schedule. And Jack, this is something that um, I think we were both aware of because of a, a certain podcast we both quite adore. But uh, it it it's recently around now is the the ten year anniversary of a pretty seminal film for all three of us. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yeah, I really... So, I did a rewatch because, yeah, like you say, we, we listen to a podcast, not to plug other podcasts on this podcast, but 30-20-10. Um, 
when you finish listening to this great podcast, go and check that out, maybe, because... that it, it, <laughs> Part of the Laser Time Podcast Network. Yeah, I basically call it the podcast that makes me feel well old in it, because every single week, they're like, this is 20 years old now, this is 10 years old. And I'm like, oh, holy shit. It was the start of this year when you just heard the opening of Frames of Baby One More Time, and it was like, oh yeah, that's 20 years ago. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um but Um, that aside scott pilgrim um i loved this movie when i first watched it i loved it uh, i loved it when we went to see edgar wright doing q a for it i've watched it over the years loved it loved it loved it and i rewatched it the other day and to the great surprise of no one i still love this movie so i kind of just wanted to talk to you guys about uh your you know your opinions on this movie in 2020 and uh whether you still love it as much as i do so like yeah, it's one of my favorite movies. Um, it's by one of my favorite directors. I love so many of the people in it. I had loved them from other things. Obviously, Michael Sarah has a place in my heart forever because of Arrested Development. So to get to see him in this was amazing. This was so. This came out obviously a month before I started my my masters when I moved up to college. And that whole year, there were three movies I was trying... Oh, no, four movies I was trying to get everybody to watch because the the, the la, uh, one of them came out just slightly after this, but the rest of them... So all year, if you were like, oh, what movie will we watch? I would suggest some combination of Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Black Dynamite, which I had just recently discovered, uh, The King of Kong, which I had discovered over this year as well, or Easy A. Um, so there was just this playlist. Oh my god, of, Easy of A is ten years old as well. What a great film! That it must. Is. It it's ten or eleven years old because I definitely saw it and was watching it when I lived in in my college house, and that was 2010, 2011. Um. So yeah, that was that was a really underrated yeah. movie. But the other three, like, I was gonna say, Dynamite, like my one point on that is that's the first movie that you see Emma Stone, and you're like, okay, she's gonna be like one of the biggest actresses in the world. And it's going to be, yeah. like, tomorrow. And and it, it kind of bore out after that. Yeah. At the time, I remember people wondering who the biggest star in the movie was, her or Amanda Bynes. And that that it's amazing the, the way time has marched on ever I since. I think, so, what's happened to Amanda Bynes is, is very sad. Um, yeah, it's it so sad, because she, yeah, if you go back and watch... <laughs> I now just completely hijacked this and made this an easy A discussion. But if you go back and yeah. watch that film, she's <laughs> so fucking great. She's so funny. Yeah. It's like, imagine... I often imagine her, like, if she'd been around just a few years before, like, how good she would have been in something like Mean Girls as well. Well, well she was, yeah, because she was... Um, she's slightly older than Lindsay Lohan, I think, because she was, was she? she was doing that, she was doing that Amanda show, and she was, like, the chosen one for Nickelodeon, uh, at, like, around 2000 or so, uh, she's not too far off the same age as, as Lindsay Lohan, I, I, I don't know, but she, I remember hearing of her first, but then, like, the parent trap was probably out by then, but that movie would not have come across my radar, <laughs> Um, in the same way that just something on Nickelodeon would have. And I remember, like, thinking she was brilliant and, like, um, Drake from Drake and Josh got his start in that show on Nickelodeon. This has gone really far off. Uh, Wait, can we link it? Is <laughs> so there anyone from Pilgrim. Nickelodeon that was on Scott Pilgrim that we can link it back to? Oh, I'm trying to rack my brains now. Probably. there's There's got to be some overlap. <laughs> Wasn't Brandon Ralph, like, people... buying... Oh, yeah! No! Um, fucking, um... Oh, fuck. What's her Anna name? Anna Kendrick? Um... 
No, Captain Marvel. Brie Lawson. Brie. Brie Lawson. Brie Larson, yeah. She was the little sister in that Bob Saget sitcom. Um, oh, eight. No. Where, where Kat Dennings was the big sister. Uh, yeah, yeah, I knew he said eight simple rules, but it wasn't that. Uh, and I, th- I. No, it wasn't, but they were on around the same time, and it was like, she was. Yeah, they, the two of them were sisters, and. I think that aired on Nickelodeon over here. So there you go. There's your link. Scott Pilgrim it versus It really concerns me where you two pull these things from sometimes. But <laughs> Yeah, I know. Right? I mean, so many non sequiturs are thrown out that you actually forget where the conversation starts sometimes. Yeah. yeah. But I got us back. I got us back. Well done. Is it called... Was it called Full... No, is it Full House? Raising no, Dad. that was... It. Raising Dad. That's, that's the, the one. one. Yeah, but uh, Full House was the one that Bob Saget, like, he got, he became a, a household name doing. Because he was doing that in America's home videos, um, funniest home yeah. videos at Yeah, and the time. then he, like, pivoted so hard because everyone just knew him as the family guy to be, like, the filthiest yeah. comic on the planet. Yeah. Anyway, Mark. Yeah, Scott, Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim's great. I actually watched uh, a couple of weeks ago, they did for charity, and uh, and a bunch of different like television shows and films have been doing this kind of thing recently. Uh, I know Community did a thing where they um, did a, I can't remember which episode it was, but they had everyone on a Zoom call and they were you know, reading through the script of a particular episode. And they did this with Scott Pilgrim and they had pretty much everyone other than um, Macaulay Culkin's brother, brother whose name Kieran I can't Culkin. remember off the top of my head. Kieran, Kieran Culkin, that's the one. But they had everyone else there uh, and they just kind of read through the script and, um, and, like for the most part they were kind of like a bit in character but they were just kind of being easy with it but ellen wong as knives chow like she played it exactly as she was in the movie and it's kind of weird watching her because this is obviously 10 years older and she must be i'd say like in her late 20s now um but she plays it exactly as knives chow 10 years prior and like everyone else is pissing themselves laughing because of how like to the character she's playing it um and it was just yeah it was really like refreshing to watch it's always fun to watch that kind of thing in that kind of behind the scenes where you've got the person reading the script and the directions what's going on uh and and people trying to kind of act in character but yeah i mean scott pilgrim was amazing i i loved it when i saw it obviously the the um video game references that are in there but just the way that edgar wright puts a film together and like the energy that you get in it um it's you know i i've watched the film multiple times over the years and it still holds up which i think is kind of the key thing because there are some films that are funny or are great or you appreciate but they kind of feel like they're trapped in a moment in time but i do feel scott pilgrim has a certain timeless timelessness quality to it Mm. i think one of the things that helps is that it's um so it's the best video game movie ever made and it does that by not being based on a video game you know um and that was the same with the comics it's one of the best kind of like uses of video game tropes and and things like that uh, you'll see in a comic book because it kind of it doesn't go too heavily into one particular thing to, to hit that joke over and over again it's kind of a lot of things that even if you're not like as into games as we are here on a video game podcast um there are a lot of things you will have picked up through cultural osmosis being around our age that you you won't be lost going to see this movie um and i think it's just like with all edgar wright stuff i think the the editing is just so good in this movie and the the dialogue is so sharp and i think it's one of those rare movies where I think in the ensemble, you can't really pick out anybody who doesn't belong. You know, there's nobody who you go, Ooh, they could have done a better job casting that person. It's just a great 
ensemble. And at the time, particularly, there's a couple of them that you, you never would have, if you were casting it yourself, you never would have said Chris Evans as Luke no, Lee. No. You know what yeah, I mean? And yeah. he's just so good. Like, like sort of doing this amalgamation of a load of different action guys uh, and Hugh Jackman. Um, and Brandon Routh as well is so great. Um, Tom Thomas Jane for the five minutes he's in it, if that is so good. But like, all, all the little, actors you've just mentioned are only in it for five minutes. Like they're all yeah. in it. Like the, the the cast list of this movie for the amount of time you actually see the people that that, that they are and yeah. how big a star is insane. Like if you had yeah. no Aubrey prior Plaza, knowledge of this who, movie, like in twenty twenty, and you're yeah. watching it now for the first time, you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, mega stars like Aubrey Plaza, who was like. Like Parks and Rec would have just started kind of like kicking yeah. off in, in terms of like, I know the show had been on for a while at that point, I think. But in terms of like, you know, the way it was on for a couple of seasons before people were really raving about it. So like this was the first time I think I'd ever seen her in anything or at least noticed her at the time, even though she's like a, just a much bigger star now. Anna Kendrick was basically known as one of the B-tier uh, Twilight cast you know, she was like maybe sixth or seventh build in those early movies. I didn't even know she was in Twilight. Yeah, either. yeah, yeah. She's she's just one of the people in the school. Um, that was kind of what people knew her best from at that stage. You know, unless you were really into because she was on she she did a lot of Broadway stuff, didn't she? Growing up, yeah. Um, so unless you were really into that, uh, well, had a- any of those? What were the fucking um, acapella films she was in? Pitch Perfect was, I think, like right. After it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely after this. I want to say like yeah, two, maybe two years I, after this. Yeah, I went to see the first one on the strength of I thought she was really funny in Scott Pilgrim, and she was in this. Um, so yeah, I feel like it had to have been after. Um, but yeah, like there's so, like you said, you look back ten years and so many of these, like Alison Pill as well. Oh, Alison you know, Pill, she went great. She's she's my favorite, like of all the actresses we've talked about in this movie. Like I just yeah. I love the way that she's just having absolutely none of Scott whatsoever. In fact, the fact that Scott is so blissfully unaware of how most of the people in his life are having absolutely none of Scott is one of the best features of the film for yeah. me. It's weird when I think about that like maybe the biggest movie star at the time of this Sarah. film that's in it is Was what? Sarah? Right. Well no, because he was yeah, like him or Jason Schwartzman. I gotta say, Sarah though, because Juno like had made him like an uh, yeah. an absolute megastar, really, hadn't it? And then Super Bad as well were kind of like what, yeah, yeah. sort of late, sort of two thousand six, two thousand seven kind of time. Mm. Yeah, and what uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead had been John McClane's daughter, and that was about yeah, it that was in terms of like big films. Seriously, like I remember talking to about this with friend of the show Matt Niner about how much we love Mary Elizabeth Winstead uh, in that Die Hard Four movie after because we saw that together and then yeah seeing her in this i was like oh cool it's her from the movie and she's just so much cooler in this movie by the way um but yeah uh just a masterpiece of a movie well worth checking out again yeah, and check out that um that reading that mark mentioned it's brilliant mainly just so you can see how buddy buddy chris evans with his like his dog <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> chris evans was the whole thing with his dog on his lap and yeah, it's pretty adorable. I, I currently think there is no purer energy in the world than Chris Evans in general. I'm telling you, right? He's so, awesome. like, he is awesome. And because, you know, he's an amazing cap, he is great. He is the best part of the MCU, in my honest opinion. 
but people forget the man's comedic chops. Yeah. And like between Lucas Lee and um just his his Knives role out. in Knives yeah. Out, even though he isn't the most comedic person in Knives Out, it's just like a whole farce of a movie and he is part of it. Um oh, no. he, 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 he is Out, one Mark? of the funniest oh, yeah. parts. Oh, I saw Knives Out. Knives Out's amazing. Yeah. Knives right. Out was one of the best I, films. I am last a Benoit Blank Stan, alright? I am so happy that they're moving ahead with a sequel to that, where it seems to be like um Everybody, like, it's a completely different cast of characters, except it's another Benoit Blanc mystery. Was it you, or was it someone else I saw on Twitter one time? Was like, like, Daniel Craig should just be Benoit Blanc again, but just do a completely different accent this time. Uh, I think that was Garrett Kidney was saying it to me. Was it Garrett Kidney? Somebody like that was saying that to me one of the times I was talking about Benoit Blanc, which is very often yeah. on Twitter.com. Um, I, I, I love that man. Somebody had posited the idea that it's all the same actors again, but everyone is playing a different character except Daniel Craig. Oh my God, that would be amazing. By the way, <laughs> why haven't they commissioned a 10-part Netflix series for, for Benoit Blanc yet? I, I, I just <laughs> don't get it. Like I'd be trying to sign that up right now. Daniel Craig as well. Talk show. about comedic chops. You know, probably one of the most serious, edgy takes on James Bond ever. Like a completely yeah. stoic, you know, like hard, repressed, emotional, brilliant performances that he brings out of that. And then he just turns up as Captain fucking Wacky and he can do anything over the top <laughs> as well. That guy is yeah. goddamn talented too. But, yeah, between Knives Out and Logan Lucky as well, where he plays Joe Bang. Like oh, to absolute! <laughs> I absolutely love Logan Lucky. I I feel like it's so <laughs> underrated. It kind of just went underneath everyone's radar almost. Yeah, I don't know what happened though because he was atrocious in that Tomb Raider film, or at least his accent yeah. was. Oh uh, yeah, but that yeah. film wasn't good in general, was it? No, yeah, no, no. no. There's um, a difference between a man enjoying himself and a man absolutely phoning it in, and you can tell that he really <laughs> enjoys himself in in Knives Out. I mean, thank it'd be you. impossible not to. Thank you, Jack, for the segue. Speaking of absolutely phoning it in, I saw X-Men Dark Phoenix <laughs> the other day. <laughs> well done. What a so long streak of piss that movie is. <laughs> oh my god, it's so bad. I, I, So this was part of my... We talked about it on the show last week. I, I re-watched all the X-Men films. Uh, so I, the ones I have left to watch in the X-Men universe are... The Deadpool's and Logan, because I'm not going to watch the other two uh, Wolverine movies. I can't do that to myself. So I've gotten all the main X-Men movies done now. And it's tough to say because they're so bad in such different ways, which is worse, X-Men 3 or Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix. Um, and I don't think it's close. Uh, I think there are worse performances in Dark Phoenix for sure I think it's tough to like I think the bar was higher for X-Men 3 after X-Men 2 which is part of what made it such a crushing disappointment whereas I think like as soon as I you would have seen Apocalypse and seen Sophie Turner's Jean Grey I don't know how high your hopes could possibly have been for Dark Phoenix and it lands at about where you'd expect um, for putting a whole film on the shoulders of an absolutely paper-thin imitation of Jean Grey. Um, like I said to you, Jack, when I was like when I was in the middle of watching it and just aghast in disbelief, it's like the film couldn't decide 
whether it wanted to be faithful to the comics or not because there's some stuff that movie does that is so faithful to the dark phoenix saga in the comics like you know they do the going to space she gets hit with what looks like a solar flare and you know stuff like that you know but then i I was telling you jack one of my biggest problems with the movie is that it feels like between apocalypse and dark phoenix there was another film that they forgot to release yeah they just they because start the movie and everyone's in different places and different stages of yeah. uh, of their lives and you just there's no like yeah. mon- like you, you suggested to me Dave that they should have done a montage to kind of explain what had happened to the characters similar to the one that they had at the start of Watchmen which is one of the greatest like you know everybody gives out about Zack Snyder and, and whatever I like the Watchmen movie but I wouldn't like sit here and defend Zack Snyder for an hour but I think a lot of people commonly agree that 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 opening sequence is one of the greatest opening sequences in a comic book movie you'll ever see. Um, in terms of how it like basically teaches you about the universe through an incredibly well stylized opening sequence, it's it's it, it's really really good. Yeah, but, but I think thi- it's fair enough. They didn't care enough at this point. Like it really feels like just let's get this fucking thing done. And well, be done this with it. this is the thing is that it went into production around the time that everything happened with Brian Singer. So it ends up being directed by the guy who wrote the screenplay. Um, and, you know, sometimes that that works well because then you have a director that, that understands the source material because he wrote it. But then other times you have somebody who ends up not wanting to cut any of their own script from the film. So it ends up bloated and with a lot of like unnecessary bollocks. And it really, you know, you were talking about Jack, how, you know, they all start the film in different places and that can be fine. You know, um, like other films in this franchise have done that where they, it's like a cold open and everywhere, everyone is off somewhere else. But at least some of the places are interesting or you can understand based on what happened at the end of the last film why somebody might be out do you know like at the start of apocalypse because of the events of first class eric lencher has gone into hiding in poland and he's not really using his powers and he started a family because he's trying to get away from everything that happened in in or after days of future past should i say um after everything after he appeared on on national tv um, and is the most recognized mutant in the world, he goes and disappears into the woods, essentially. Um, that's more understandable. But the stuff that really was jarring at the start of this film is like, you know, fucking Xavier goes into his office and he just has a hotline to the president. And I was like, oh, hello, Mr. President, and all this shit. And I was like, oh my God. For a movie that was attempting to straddle some sort of like grounded realism and intertwine itself with historical accuracy uh in first class it's just completely lost the fucking plot and you know there, there's about a 50 50 split in this film of things that look either oh you know they spent some time crafting this shot or you know this looks really expensive and then there's stuff that looks oh my god this is janky as hell i always think that the like the insides of the this uh, xavier school look great in these movies but then you have something really simple like there's like an aerial cg shot they do of the mansion where they forgot to CG in like any of the driveways or anything like that leading up to the mansion. So it just looks like a mansion in the middle of a field that there's no actual way to access. Um, I, I think at the start of the movie, he has this weird kind of neon blue chair that he's in that looks really 
anachronistic with the time period and even with like the usual X-Men aesthetic that like it's really jarring and then something that I think was particularly gutting to me and I'd say to a lot of comic book fans uh, the place they find Eric Lencher uh, in this movie is in Genosha which uh, you know if you read X-Men comics is this supposed to be this tropical paradise island <laughs> that Magneto has built to be like a haven for mutants and the house of M and all this good stuff oh, and uh jack do you want to describe what it looks like in dark phoenix it just looks it, it kind of to me it looked like the set of the movie adventureland uh with jesse eisenberg or it's like a weird theme park slash shanty town and it is yeah. the like the least you know uh, a, a complete antithesis of everything that you just described that genosha to be to the point dave where i didn't even fucking recognize it i'm like okay sure uh, he Eric's living in an abandoned theme park, so that ma- that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, like why don't I just wander over here and play some ring toss? Uh, oh, I always yeah. win because I'm fucking magnetic. Like I don't understand what the hell they were even thinking with that. As as Genosha, do they actually identify it as Genosha in the movie? I don't think. Yes, a- apparently. I... Um, I don't know if it's a deleted scene or anything uh... like that. I don't think they ever say Genosha. But I looked it up afterwards because I was so appalled. And yes, it is absolutely supposed to be. Yeah, I was, it was one of the things that I remember coming out of the movie, reading it like, you know, you come out of a movie, you're like, oh, boy, how's a how's a real piece of shit. Um, <laughs> and then you just start you just start <laughs> reading reviews because you think like, I wonder, like, if everyone else kind of agrees with me, because I remember like I, I would maybe look at a Metacritic score or something, but I won't bother to read any reviews of movies because I kind of see them when they come out now. Um, but yeah, I just everyone was saying how terrible it was, and and at one point someone wrote something like so-called Genosha, and I was like, no way, that was meant to feature. And then yeah, I, I read it, and I was like, unironically, they were trying to pass off that fucking shithole as Genosha. What what the hell were they doing? Yeah, uh, and uh, the other thing about it, I think as well. Um, is how very clearly a lot of people didn't want to be in this movie. <laughs> or even make the movie. They only made it because yeah. of the contract thing. Yeah, so, like, I-, I think we had long passed the point where uh, Jennifer Lawrence had just open contempt for being in these yeah, movies. Yeah, and, and spoiler alert, That's very half apparent. the reason that, spoiler alert, she was killed right away, in yeah. my opinion, was because they were like, look, y- y- just, just be in the movie for, like, ten minutes don't worry, we'll, yeah. we'll sort you out somehow. Same with uh, Evan Peters, who is KO'd in the same scene and only comes back at the end of the movie. Yeah. And you're like, oh yeah, he was in this And he on. doesn't even have that Jennifer Lawrence level cachet. Uh, he's just yeah. probably like, I just, I'm done. I don't want to be in this piece of yeah. shit because it's a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, and then you like you think of things like oh god like no wonder like obviously with how tumultuous it is behind the scenes but also the person that Jennifer Lawrence acts opposite most in those films is uh, the boyfriend she had a very acrimonious split with uh, after the first one of these movies Nick Holt so you can't really blame her for you know not finding it a pleasant experience to come back every couple of years it was hardly like a really pleasant reunion for all of them I imagine um but yeah, oh, just a piece of shit movie. Yeah. Just, just so and bad. I want to say that I, uh, I there, obviously there are a few performances that phoned in, but I do think McAvoy and um, um, Fassbender were giving it their best. 
you know, I, I yeah. Well, I think I think those dudes can do a good performance in their scene. Yeah, I, I think they are probably that good. Um, I mean, it was very obvious that Jennifer Lawrence is an amazing actress, and maybe you could argue, up maybe uh, if not, maybe even on the same level or better as than those guys because I've seen her do a lot of good stuff but she just she couldn't be asked man <laughs> yeah <laughs> like all of her scenes she was just like yeah dark she was, phoenix well, she mostly uh... yeah she was mostly not even in the makeup for this because she's just not fucked about it like. I, I think it's just one of those things that like if you're uh, in whatever kind of contractual obligations and i mean apocalypse wasn't a great film no and, it wasn't you know <laughs> it was... I can imagine you just get to a point. It's like, look, I just want this film done. Like, I just, you know, I, I can see her just not being bothered with it because she probably saw the script, knew that, you know, it looked terrible from the get-go, knew that Apocalypse was terrible. And it's just like, let's just get this done and, and be done with it and move on with our lives. Well, um, if, I, if I remember right with the timeline of when she would have signed on to first class, I would say it was before she went, like, before the Hunger Games went huge. Um, so she'd probably been in Winter's Bone at this stage. So she was starting to get a bit of kind of like recognition um, for sure in the mainstream. But like, you know, it was around the time where everyone like everyone does the comic book movie to get the name out there a bit more. And I think she signed up for a multi-picture deal. And then in between the first and the second film, she was already too big a star, really, to be messing and around with And you know what this. happened in between these two films that made it even more likely Oh no, sorry, so the first class and, and um, Days of Future Past that made it even more likely that they were going to make multiple films was Avengers came out in 2012. So when Avengers came out, everyone was like, fuck, we need a comic book franchise like yesterday. And Fox were like, well, we, we just rebooted the X-Men, so franchise, baby. And then you can tell that it's that kind of thinking that led to the law of diminishing returns because it was first class, great. Uh, Days of Future Past was good. Uh, Apocalypse was kind of bad, and this sucked balls. Uh, to to not put yeah. up. Uh, not only that, but you'd imagine for a lot of the first some of these actors anyway that might have you know maybe fancied being in a comic book movie, they're seeing the yeah the Marvel machine kicking off, and they're locked into a Fox contract. <laughs> yeah, as well. Where they're like all all these roles in much better comic book movies are coming up, and they can't go for them. Do you think these studios and stuff have like given up the ghost on trying to have their own universe? Because I mean the. The two, I mean, depending on how you want to look at the the X Men universes, if they're two or they just throw everything together, well, or um, or like you had the fucking attempts at the Dark Universe, which lasted yeah. one film. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you feel like studios is kind of going to give up the ghost? It's like we're never even going to come close to the MCU, yeah. and God knows what DC is at this point. So the the X Men universe is done anyway because Disney bought Fox so X Men is back with Marvel uh, as soon as they want to roll that in um there is that new mutants film that was filmed it feels like about fifteen years ago that still hasn't come out yet with Maisie Williams in it um that like uh, the popular internet joke is that the new mutants doesn't actually exist. Because I think maybe there's been, what, Jack, maybe a minute's worth of footage that movie has ever been seen. It's one of those things that you hear about every now and then, every six (laughs) months, and you're like, oh, yeah, they were doing that. That was the thing that was happening. Because there was was a Comic-Con, because Comic-Con did a virtual Comic-Con this year, and there was a Comic-Con panel booked for New Mutants, and everyone on Twitter was just like, 
what the fuck are they going to talk about? No one knows anything about this film. It seems to be like a top secret. Like everybody's assuming this film is going to be shit, but because they have it done, they're just going to like fart it out on Disney Plus or something like that. Just get it over and done with because it's already done. Um, But yeah, uh, in, in terms of other universes, I think people are always going to try. Like the other one, the only other one that I think has been a money machine on the level of Marvel. And I suppose the thing about DC, the DCEU, as they call it, is even though critically it gets panned left, right and centre, all those movies, I think with the exception of one or two, have made a ridiculous amount of money. You know, um, Justice League in in spite of I, I i can't remember any critics who really love that movie it made a lot of money you know so as long as that's making money that's going to keep going on we've got wonder woman 1988 which would have been out now by now i think if it wasn't for covid um that's probably going to be pretty good um so you'll you'll get like scattershot stuff with that matt reeves batman movie is out like end of next year i think or early 2022 so we'll see what what that shit looks like. Um, James Gunn is doing Suicide Squad, and if there's a man that I would put my faith in when I hear new Suicide Squad movie, it's probably James Gunn. Um, so that you know, at least the bar is nice and low for him. Is it the same cast <laughs> that, or like, is it an all new cast? No, completely yeah. different cast. Apart from, I, is Margot Robbie returning? I think Margot Robbie's returning. And I think for a while it was Margot Robbie and Will Smith, but I don't think Will Smith is back, but I could be wrong on that. I know but Dave Batista's in it. So, like, what more do you need? Yeah, I'm in it for Dave. It's like a ridiculous cast if you look it up. I remember there's, there's loads of fucking people coming in this new Suicide Squad movie. But um, the other franchise I can think of, we mentioned it quite recently on this show, Fast and Furious. That is one of the biggest yeah. film franchises financially in the world right now. Uh, another one I was thinking of was the Mission Impossible ones. Yeah. Um, well, what, what, and obviously, why do you think they carried on making those shitty Fantastic Beasts Harry Potter movies as well? Once that was done, yeah. they were like, oh, yeah. fuck. I mean, I, I, I won't be holding my breath on the third one of those, to be honest. Oh, oh uh, God. Oh, God. The second. I don't know if I've ever talked about... Especially considering the man they set up to be the main antagonist of the whole series is Johnny Depp. Yes, it's Johnny Depp. And also, they give him a speech where he's meant to sort of reveal how evil he is. And he just makes a lot of sense for the thing he says. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah. you know what? All um, of these humans are going to kill themselves in a big world war. We should take control for a while. And then maybe then after they've kind of learned not to try and kill each other, you know, that's when, you know, we, that's when you turn him evil. So it's like, it would have been really interesting take if they'd just gone, okay, well then they stopped the war and then, and then he tries to take it. Oh, he's like, well, we're in charge now. And then you have the sort of humans versus the wizards kind of element going on. Like, but obviously we know that didn't happen in human history. But when he's actually doing his speech and they're all appalled, I'm like, no, I'm on his side. We don't want anyone to die. What are you fucking doing? How, how much do you think they really wish they could go back in time and just flip that reveal around at the end of the first one and it was Johnny Depp, but it turns into Colin Farrell so that they could just keep making those so movies much. now? <laughs> and Colin Farrell, like, I I will say this, Colin Farrell was great in that Colin Farrell movie. is great like, in every movie. Yeah, he is. He's fucking good. Yeah. He's the most underrated guy, I think, um... 
in in sort of the last ten years, he has so many sneaky, really good bits and movies, and in a lot of different genres. He's just a real kind of Renaissance actor, and I like him. I I actually I watched uh, Seven Psychopaths for the first time Great. a couple of weeks ago, and um, I mean he it's very much kind of like that and in Bruges, are sort of like two sides of the same coin with Colin Farrell and how he how he acts. I mean, in Bruges is, is incredible, um, but I, I did enjoy Seven Psychopaths just because of he, him, and you know Christopher Walken is just like he's just a fucking a masterpiece of an actor. Um, and Sam Rockwell, don't forget. And Sam Rockwell is completely insane. I didn't quite understand what the fuck was going on with him for about ninety percent of that film, uh, but like just kind of agreeing in terms of Colin Farrell. Um, yeah, I, I do think he is underrated, but I mean he did do that. Um, Total Recall film, and that was terrible. So you know, no one's. Oh, perfect. that's not on him though. That just wasn't good. No, but it was terrible. There's a great uh, in the vein of those kind of uh, great Colin Farrell performances in, you know, in Bruges and Seven Psychopaths, both being Martin McDonough movies. So kind of like by proxy Irish movies. He's in a, a movie that got like really big over here, and I think it had a limited release over in, in the UK as well at the time. Intermission. Um, that was like in the mid two thousands, and it's like uh, packed with a lot of faces of Irish actors that you know now, but at the time, like Colin Farrell would have been known, but a lot of the rest of them wouldn't have been. Like Killian Murphy is in it before anyone really knew who Killian Murphy was, um, and uh, Michael Mac, what's his name, Michael Hatton, Bruce Bolton from Game oh, right, of Thrones yeah. is in it. I mean, don't and... say the actor name, just say Bruce. Bolton. <laughs> Yeah, not Michael yeah. McIntyre where I thought he was going. I mean, I would never watch um, anything Michael McIntyre was in. Yeah, he's not. He's not the only other. Like, um, fucking the guy who plays Varus is in it as well. Um, like, yeah, there's there's a lot of people you would recognize in Intermission. It's one that's that's definitely worth uh, checking. Is it? Out. It called Intermission because they filmed it in a gap between Game of Thrones, <laughs> just breaking. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was actually long before it was two thousand and three. Oh, this wow. movie came out. Yeah, so I think maybe the most famous, like, proper A-list actor at the time, uh, you know, maybe Colin Farrell, but Colin Meany. Oh, Colin Meany. And he would have been... So Colin Meany would have been at the peak of his powers here because it's a few years after he had been in uh, Star Trek and in Con Air. Uh, (laughs) I love love Colin (laughs) Meany in in Con Air so much. He's just the worst person. And it feels like every scene he's just trying to be more of an arsehole. Him in a sports car. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah, it says, <laughs> a- and the number plate is A Z Z kicker, like as yeah. kicker. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear! Welcome to the movie podcast. Link to the cast. Yeah, I know. Uh, I just want to mention briefly before we get into the news because I realized I, w- I was going to knock it off, but then I realized we only really have news for the rest for after our games. But um, I I started because I was kind of after uh, Days of Future Past was on a bit of a. Patrick Stewart kick and I decided because it's all on Netflix so I was gonna have a dip in and because there had been recently a video from Red Letter Media talking about the show I was like I, you know I've never actually watched any of the Star Trek shows right haven't you I, no. I've seen all of Next Generation because my dad was a huge fan so when I was like a kid it was just on yeah. all the time in our house so, so this is this is where I'm going with it because like I I, I don't think you know I, I think the original series suffers from being so dated that I don't think I could ever like dated in you know I, I suppose if you're around at the time it's dated in a good way but for us it's probably kind of dated in a way that's janky and doesn't really yeah I I my equivalent I, would be I love Batman but I'm not gonna watch Batman sixty six I I just yeah, not yeah. going to 
Now I, w- I watched Batman 66 when I was a little kid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it was never on. watch like, it and enjoy it in the same way now. Yeah, it was on on like, it was like a Saturday or a Sunday morning on ITV back in the day. And I'd seen it and I, I thought it was all right. But the three of us would have grown up during the renaissance of Star Trek on TV. So, like, during our lifetime, the next generation, Voyager and Deep Space Nine, were all on Sky all the fucking time. I've seen them all, dude. I, I didn't yeah. even want to, but but I was. they were all on where I was mm. too young to be, like, I'm going to hang out by myself in my room all the time kind of age. Um, so I, I've seen the whole lot. And I've got to say... They're all pretty fucking good. Like, so th- this is this is where I'm going with this. Like, I was surprised. So, like, and this is something I've been I'd been told. So, the first couple of seasons of Next Generation is a bit patchy. You know, yeah. it's it's kind of it's the symptom of like when you have to have like whatever how many episodes of television that a lot of them are just going to be weird monster of the week or weird. We're going to throw some shit at a wall and maybe it won't be good. Um, but like. There's such a good cast of actors in this that I think it can't help but be like, you know, even in episodes where I'm like, wow, the premise of this alien, you know, monster of the week or their problem of the week um, is a bit silly to me. Uh, it, it, I think I will always tune in for patrick stewart who something that had never been i think the show would have been sold on me at a lot younger of an age if they said patrick stewart basically plays the most aggrieved man in the world (laughs) he absolutely everything about the world around him constantly annoys and frustrates him (laughs) yeah that pretty much sums him up really well he he, he's just had enough of everything kind of thing (laughs) so like i i love him and um him and jonathan frakes who are acting in every scene great they're like they're on stage like they're very theatrical big performances you know Uh, and they enunciate like they're trying for the back row of seats at a theater to hear it Uh, and then you've got like a mix of some really good tv actors and then some people come in and it's just like oh my god (laughs) Um, but yeah, I'm, I think I'm about seven or eight episodes in now, and I think I'm going to keep going, because everybody says, I think it's like season three that the Borg show up, which is where everyone says, fucking season three is oh. where it becomes like proper gripping television. Dude, the whole, the whole thing with the Borg that they put, um, they put Patrick Stewart through is awesome. Um, and you got to watch the movie as well, because it kind of ties into it. And that was a, mm-hmm. that was a good ass movie as well. I remember getting like back in the day on like a videotape or something and watching yeah. that. Um, but yeah, but, uh, I've agreed. It's weird. Have you guys got any like shows where you you didn't necessarily want to watch it, but you've seen all of it and you kind of like it, even though you don't seek it out? Mash. Everybody loves Raymond. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. It, Happy days as well. It's the Raymond thing, Mark, just because it was on Channel Four over in the UK and on the mornings, like every single. No, no, it was it was my granddad. Uh, he he had Comedy Central on a fair bit, and like between that and Two and a Half Men, I've probably seen like most of both of those shows, even though I wasn't actively trying to watch them. Mm. But Raymond's not bad, is it? No, no, it, it is funny. It is, and even some of Two and a Half Men is is funny. Um, but yeah, it, I, not two shows that I'd have ever actively been trying to find to watch yeah um yeah mash and happy days are the ones for me that were just always seemed to be on and i've seen a lot of and like <laughs> Dave, he's enough, 60 years old <laughs> yeah i know i funnily i think like mash is 
something that w- when I understand what the show is about now, that it's like this drama, like, like in my head, if you had asked me as a kid, I would have said that it was like a sitcom. But like, it's a real like, it, it runs that line between drama and comedy because it's set during the Vietnam War. Like, or no, the, is it the Korean War or the Vietnam War? Uh, the, I think it's Vietnam, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I, I started doubting myself oh, there. Mate, you, you've this, made me doubt now you've thrown Korea in the mix. <laughs> yeah, because I know the whole the whole joke was it went on longer than the war actually lasted. Yeah, I think um, it actually did. It was the Korean War. Yeah. Oh, was it Korea? Yeah, but the... um. The last episode of the show was like the most watched thing on TV in America for like decades, wasn't it? I think Seinfeld yeah. overtook it eventually, and now I think it's probably the Super Bowl. But yeah, um, yeah, it would like so I, I watched a lot of that, and I think like it wasn't until years later that I started getting all the jokes. You know, the Futurama mash episode where they're they you know war were declared, they all get signed up for the the army when they go into the reserves, and war were declared, and they go. It's the one with the brain balls. Yeah. And that's like, that whole thing is a MASH parody. And I think when I was a kid and I watched that episode the first time, I didn't get it. And now... Dude, that's like every episode of The Simpsons that I saw when I was a kid as a parody for something. And then you see the thing and you're like, why does this feel familiar? And then you're like that kid from South Park voice in your head, Simpsons, dead it. Just because you know that you've seen it before because The Simpsons have parodied it before you've even experienced it in real life. Um, I think that's yeah. a big trope of like Matt Groening, uh, David X Cohen led stuff. Yeah, uh, and I watched a lot of uh, Happy Days as well as a kid, which I would absolutely not seek out now. But it was always on in the middle of the day on Channel Four. So, what were you gonna do? Yeah, I, and the same I with a lot of. Winkler, I, I suppose. By the way, Winkler's a lot of great. Yeah, a lot of the old kind of like if you because like it, living at home or then when I was living with my granny, you see a lot of murder mysteries that you never would have. Like, I would never have looked for Murder, She Wrote <laughs> independently. Or I've seen a lot of... You said of, it I know wrong, I have though. Co- it's Murder, She Wrote. you got to, you got the, to remember that comma. <laughs> the other one I, I think of a lot because I have coasters of it uh, because of a Twitter joke gone awry is I watched almost the entire run of Diagnosis Murder. The Dick Van Dyke, uh, who, uh, like, doctor cop procedural, where, like, he's a medical doctor... His son, who is his actual son in real life as well, is a cop, and the two of them solve crimes together. Okay. <laughs> Dude, like, it's dog shit, but it's great. Fair enough. Yeah, I've never... And almost that. almost every episode ends with uh, Barry Van Dyke, the, who, who plays the son, the, the, son, the cop, uh, football tackling somebody who's trying to run away when it's been revealed they were the murderer. It's great. <laughs> it's truly great. But anyway, look, we'll move on and actually talk about video games an hour into this fucking Jesus show, Christ, shall we? the tangents that we have been on, <laughs> the journeys that we've been on here. Mark, uh, as a mea culpa for taking you so far off the point, uh, lead us in on Fall Guys. Uh, Alright, Fall Guys. Um, I mean, honestly... I don't have so much I can say uh, coming out of last week because I've not been able to play that much because the servers have been on fire since release. Uh, I know you've had a little bit more luck with the PlayStation version, but yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, coming out works quite a lot of the time for me. I don't know about you, Dave. I, yeah, I, it, I think yesterday evening was the first time I saw pretty much nobody on PlayStation could get into it. Yeah, I mean, I tried to load up a couple of games at lunch yesterday and then after I finished work and just immediately as... 
the the loading screen comes up with the little guy falling just i i got the the error message uh straight away so i don't know if it meant that the servers have been taken down for them to try and you know fix them or whatever um but i just i was getting nothing but i tried again uh i want to say about eight o'clock i got into a game and then i tried again when i got home about half 10 11 and i was able to get into a game so i mean you know from what i said last week the, there's not much more that wasn't already in the the beta version there is party mode but i don't have anyone i know on the steam version uh, until they get crossplay uh working if they intend to um but it's you know it's good it's fun i still don't like the team mode levels uh they kind of piss me off um I've seen a lot more already from the beta to this version, a lot more players being uh, fuckers, you know, like waiting at the end of the, the obstacle courses to try and grab people to like throw them off the, the side or whatever. Um, usually sometimes to their own downfall as like there was one time where there were like two people kind of waiting at the end, like next to the finishing line. And I managed to jump over them and dash and I was the last one to qualify, uh, eliminating both of them. So some of that kind of stuff is pretty fun. Um, definitely in like, there's the one level where you have the, like the kind of massive cylinder that you're on and there's rotating, rotating platforms and you just have to kind of run back and forth to survive. And there's a lot more people that try and grab you to hold you in place that was happening, that wasn't happening in, in the beta. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's a really cool concept. It works really well. I just, obviously, I hope that um, they they get to a place where the servers are working on a more consistent basis. And, you know, I, I'd imagine they were hoping that this would be successful, but I, I would imagine that not in their wildest dreams um, that it would pick up as, as much as it has um so yeah so i mean i'm i'm willing more than happy to hear what you two have to say if anything uh extra uh yeah it's just it's a really really fun game like when you were describing it last week mark about it having that sort of um oh the oh, i've completely gone the with the characters and the fighting and the controls being loose and wacky oh gang beasts yeah, Mark. Last week when you were talking about it having the gang beast vibe, I that that made me want to play it, and I hadn't really seen any of it. I just kind of heard people talking about it, uh, and then I watched. I would say maybe a minute or two of it, and I was like, "Yeah, I'll download this." And yeah, it's just so fun. Have you guys managed to win yet? I I haven't managed no, to win. Still haven't won. I I was diving mid air to catch the crown on the 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 kind of mountain assault course which is one of the uh, like one of the two or three ways to decide the winner. Um, and as I was in midair, somebody just beat me to it. Like I would say a quarter, maybe a half second. And I had it won. And that's I've never come that close again since um, I, I usually get to the final round. Like most of the time I get to the final round. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't. And that keeps me... I'm very interested to see how much my interest is kept up after I finally win one. So the, like, I... I do you know, I, I, the one... On. Sorry. The one point I wanted to make about this, right? And it's the thing that about um, these, like, massive uh, Battle Royale-style video games is that they tend to really piss me off, right? Uh <laughs> Call of Duty Warzone pisses me off. Like I, I love very much, by the way, thinking of the aesthetics of Fall Guys and thinking about you incandescent with rage. No, but that's the thing. And, like that's the men point. Dressed up as bubblegum pigeons. I wanted to make you step to my point <laughs> because Sorry. because it isn't, is it? 
every single game of Fall Guys I play, I'm like, even if I like go out straight away, I usually go out in such a spectacularly dumb fashion <laughs> yeah. that I can't help but piss myself and play again. Yeah. Because everything about this game, like, you know, you talk about that, you were really close to when you died for the crown, uh, Dave. I imagine that'd be frustrating, but me having yeah. not won this game so far has not made me like want to strive to do this that and the other yeah. thing i just enjoyed the hell out of it it's so silly and it's such a good palate cleanser of a game yeah i i think like you get annoyed if you get that close to getting the crown but if you're like jumping through the air and one of those hammers swings around and basically oh. knocks you 40 yards off the side of a platform the, the you're one, like oh fuck i can't be mad at that the ones that i hate are the hammers where it's just spinning around because the ones that yeah. hit you like where you you know you might not see it coming or whatever you get blindsided they're funny but it's the ones where you've got like a pivot in the middle and it's spinning around in a yeah. circle. So you can see it. You know that, that you know it's there. You're just trying to dodge it. And you think you've done it and it just comes around and like, can like canisters you in the back of the head. So, Still funny. I've had, yeah. I've had once so, or twice where the hammers have worked to my favor where they've smacked me onto a platform yes. like two platforms across. Yeah. yeah, that's happened to me too, the, but like the, the, rarely. A couple of the team ones, so I'm not annoyed at the, you know, Mark was saying that you, you, you've expressed some frustration with the team ones. I quite like them, but the thing that I get frustrated with is people who are kind of, they're just in doing their own thing. Um, So there, there there's two in particular I think of, and there's the one where you basically have to run the giant ball down the track. Um over the obstacles and you need everybody on the team to be pushing the ball because it's too heavy for one person to push and you'll get two variants on stupid people on that and there's people who are just pushing it straight forwards and not paying attention to the obstacles that are coming up so they're trying to push it into a wall and you're there you're there trying to push it away from the wall or away from the obstacle you're like fucker come on it's it's this way it's this way and then as soon as you get over, there's a bit where like you get over a ramp and it drops and then it's pretty much a straight run towards the end. But as soon as that comes down, people abandon the ball they're supposed to be pushing to try and stop other people getting their ball over the finish line. But the problem with that is I've had a, n a number of occasions where say there's six people on my team. As soon as the ball drops down, five of them run away, assuming that somebody else is going to sort out getting the ball over the finish line. And here I am trying to push my yellow ball as the blue and red guys start running at me, trying to push it back. I'm like, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and then there's a similar thing with the, there's one that's a team-based one where there's a bunch of eggs in the center of the map. Everyone has to grab eggs and put it into the net uh, that corresponds to the color that they're wearing. And... That's grand. Everybody is good at figuring out that they have to do that. Everybody is good at figuring out that you can steal from somebody else's net and bring it to somebody else's. But nobody ever fucking thinks that somebody has to play defense to stop people stealing it from their net. So yeah, like, it's stand... like Rocket League in that sense. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's like when you played um, football when you were in secondary school, whatever, and everyone wants to be a fucking winger or forward. Yeah. And so or, no one plays in defense. Yeah, or like you play Overwatch and nobody wants to play any of the healers or yeah. anything like that. Yeah, but even though it's an important role. So like when that particular activity comes up, I find myself just right. I'm going to stand at the platform that's right in front of my net and just try and grab and swat anybody that's trying to jump out. Because the thing that's great about that if you're playing defense is that it is very, very difficult for somebody to jump on the platforms and get out of there while holding the egg. So they usually have to throw the egg up over and I can just grab the egg and put it back down, and they're back to square one. I do, I do find that the grab doesn't have... Like, I know I was talking last week about the, the wonkiness. Uh, it it kind of lends uh, a humour and, and um, you know, it, 
there is a little bit of kind of tactics, but because of the, the wonkiness, it has that kind of gang beast vibe to it. I do find that the grab sometimes doesn't quite have the snap or the responsiveness that I feel like it should have or that I hope it would have. Um, you know, the number of times when I think that I grab uh, a, a, a jelly bean, full guy, whatever, and like I just, I'm swinging my arms wildly in the air, not grabbing at anything, even though I'm right next to the person. Like, I don't know if either of you two have noticed that. Uh, I think it's a it's a small frustration. I mean, I I just generally think that the the controls are the controls. Like it is like a, your analogy to Gang Beast. I'll bring it up again, Mark. It was so perfect. So it's stuff like that where you know, like in Gang Beast, where you feel like you've got a hold of someone, or you feel like you can get away from someone, and then like you dizzily sort of move away or whatever. It it just kind of feels like that. I'm not expecting any control perfection from this game. I kind of feel like the ramshackle nature of some of the things that you're doing kind of add to the experience. What would you say, Dave? Mm. Yeah, I, I feel like in another game, the grab thing would annoy me more. But there's something about it being in this game that's so dumb and like imprecise at the best of times. I'm like, ah, I can't be too annoyed. Um like one of my favorite things is just the noise of everybody when they're diving or falling over so the in particular i love the the obstacle course that has you all try to rush at the doors and some of the doors are solid walls and some of them will break through and there's that interesting strategy of like do i wait and let other people try and make the mistake so i can figure out what way to go but then they will be ahead of me on the race or do i try to be the one that goes first uh, so that if i guess right i go through it but what's amazing is when you then have uh somebody runs at the wall and it gives way so that they're able to pass through and then you end up having 60 guys trying to cram through this space and you hear the as they're all jumping over each the other the one and I've one, completely lost the plot at that point. The one better than that is where you have the uh, all the platforms, and if you stand on the correct one, it will like light up yellow, and if it's the wrong one, you'll fall through. Because you you'll usually have like the one person who will just bomb it in a straight line, and if they fall, they'll fall, whatever. But for the most part, like I played one the other day, and everyone was just kind of tiptoeing forward. Um, like it's completely like the opposite of what you usually have in any other uh, level in that game. Um, and there was two that I played. There was one where everyone was kind of tiptoeing forward and, you know, one person would just take the sacrifice because we were just going to be there forever otherwise. Uh, and that went on for like five minutes. But there was one where I watched the guy and he bombed it all the way down to the end. And it was a straight line until like the tile the second before last where he went down. And we were all kind of like following behind him and like, we're like, fuck, he's just, he's just going to like do a straight line. And then like at the last second, he, he fell. Um, so I, I like that one because like it's you, you do have that kind of like with the, the, the doors like okay do I go for it and just see what happens or they kind of wait behind and it's you know there it's not I wouldn't say it's like tactics or a tactical game but there is a there is a little bit of like you don't have to just kind of rush forward you can kind of wait and see what other people do don't you think um, that uh, the colored one that you talked about Mark and there's one similar where like they're kind of honeycomb shaped and they disappear the platforms and you have to try and stay like on the platforms as, as high as possible you know to, yeah to... that's that's the the last um that's one of the last rounds isn't it yeah it is yeah. but i thought both of those mini games were incredibly similar to mario party video games and that was what my final point about fall guys was going to be i think the reason i love fall guys is because it just reminds me of a cross between WarioWare and Mario Party 
in that it's just wacky silliness um, round after round. And the good thing is you don't have to like, you know, wait until all of your mates are in the same place at the same time to, to kind of have a throwdown of Mario Party 2 or something. Like you can just play it with 150 randoms whenever you like. So, uh, yeah, to me, this really scratches that Mario Party itch. I haven't played it for ages. So I, I love that game. And yeah, I, I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, I, I there certainly is elements of that um, in there. And I, I guess this means at some point we're going to get the Fall Guys party game. Yes, the whole the whole thing is the whole thing is just so much fun. I yeah I I I think that's the thing. It it captures that thing. Um, you know when when the servers are working, I will I will put in that caveat for Mark there. Um, but it has that thing that I think something like Splatoon has as well, where like you can get real close and yes. lose, but because it's so Moorish and it's so quick to hop back in when things are working, it's you you never really get too annoyed. Do you know, whereas I feel like something like, say, a lot of Battle Royals, like uh, player unknown Battlegrounds, you could end up spending like 20, 25 minutes being so cautious and then get like fucked up all of a sudden and then you're annoyed and then you have to try and get back into a match and all that sort of thing. It, it, ca- it, it gets that fun aspect perfect so that you never get too annoyed anyway yeah that's why um um, so my example with that dave is uh, when i first started playing call of duty warzone i was playing it to get wins and and stuff like that but then towards the end i was just getting really frustrated with some of those slow games where nothing really happens and you have to be more tactical or whatever to the point where i just started playing it to be an absolute shithouse and just (laughs) even if i knew i was going into a gunfight that i was gonna lose i would just take other people out so i started then like instead of going in teams i just started doing it by myself and fucking about because there was no joy to be had in it like by the end for me and i just completely fell off whereas this it's all joy it's all happy and yeah the, the splatoon point is is so spot on as well has that real feel um, in terms of other games, Mark, you finished Paper Mario, I believe? I did. I did. 30 hours later and uh, Paper Mario is done. And I can say that, yeah, The Origami King is is probably going to be one of my favourite games of the year. Um, certainly when we come to Game of the Year time and discussion uh, in a number of different categories. Um, so... I think one of the big points of contention that people have had that I'll I'll discuss first is some people kind of for the combat or against the combat or just find the combat works for a little while and then they get a bit tired of it. And um, combat is kind of split into two types. There's like the regular battles and the the boss battles. Uh, And in the regular battles, you've got, or for both of them at least, there's there's like a grid that you work on that's made up of four circles that you can spin around and you can also, I think it's like split into like eight or ten segments that you can bring up and down. And um, when you encounter an enemy battle, you'll have a group of enemies um, that are done in multiples of four. So you have four, eight, twelve, sixteen. Um, and you, you need to get them either in a straight line or into two sets of two. Uh, if you get them in a straight line, you can use your, your boots and you can jump on them. And there's like a, a time prompt that if you press jump as you land on them, you'll do extra damage. Or it's kind of the same with the hammer when they're in a block of four. And if you get them into either of these two formations, you get like a 1.5 uh, times multiplier. So it's not necessary to get them into that, but it does kind of speed up the battle mechanics. Um, some people have kind of like said that it's a bit tedious or that they kind of struggle with it because 
um, like some people find it hard to kind of formulate shapes in their mind or how to figure out because you only have like a fixed amount of turns to like anywhere from one to three to figure out the formation that you need to get the, the enemies into. Um, one of the things to keep in mind is that like there's only a, a fixed amount of different formations you'll find in the game. So like once you've clocked onto it once, you know, you'll remember like if it comes up again, how to, to get the enemies into that, that formation. The other thing as well, though, is as you go through the game, uh, you'll find toads that are just kind of stuck in the world at different points. And as you uh, rescue them, they will, like, when you go into to, uh, the battle mode, um, you're in a little, like, a circular arena or, like, an amphitheater. And there are toads that are sitting around, like, the bleachers uh, all around. And they're kind of cheering you on and stuff. And you can throw, uh, like, a specific amount of coins into the air. And the more coins you throw, like, toads will come down and they can help in different ways. They can give you... Um, uh, hearts to, to regenerate uh, they can give you items but they can also uh, like fix the the grids like to get the enemies into the right shape so you can kind of watch that and that's another way to kind of remember okay if they're in this sort of position this is how I can get them into the, the right type of position I need and I, I never found the, the combat tedious and like as you get further on into the game as you get more powered up you can actually take out enemies or a fair amount of enemies before you even need to go into combat by smacking them with a hammer in the, the open world. And uh, like the trade-off is you don't get as many coins and you don't get the confetti, which has its purpose in the open world. But like the economy is kind of fucked enough that um, you know, you're never really desperately trying to get coins uh, really at any point. So like that's one side of it. And the other side of it is boss battles where um, during regular battles, you're on the inside looking out, where on um, the boss battles, you're on the outside, and you need to find a way to get to the, the inner circle. And you have, like, these arrows that appear on the grid, and you have to line them up in the right way so Mario will follow them to get to the inside. Or to a specific panel, like, there's a, like, there's the kind of action panel, uh, there's a, an on panel that you need to switch on that will activate these elemental powers that you find, like, throughout the game. And... Each boss has its own kind of gimmick that they'll do where they'll fuck around with the tiles or, you know, any kind of aspect. So all of the boss battles are unique and they're all kind of very amusing. And the game is amusing in general, but they all take like the form of different utensils or stationary objects. So there's like a massive stapler who, um, as you jump on it, it, it will lose its staples. And then after like three uh, rounds... It will do this big barrage attack and that will do more damage depending on how many staples it has left. So you want to try and clear out as many of the staples beforehand. Or if there's a pair of scissors that can kill you in one shot. So it's about just avoiding its attack on its turns. And for some reason takes the form of like an Italian mobster in the way it talks. So it's, you know, it's... it's uh pretty unique in how it does that and i think that it actually pulls it off really well and each of the boss battles are pretty challenging like i spent a good 30 to 40 minutes on one or two of them because i couldn't figure out what it was i actually needed to do um and like you can regenerate your health during battles like it will throw hearts um onto the grid as you lose more health so you can kind of stay in the battle for as long as you need to um unless you really fuck up uh, to give you time to figure out, like, how do I actually defeat this specific boss? Um, but, you know, the, the open world is really fun to just kind of traverse. And 
one of the things that I think works with with the Paper Mario series and some of the the RPG Mario and Luigi games is that because they give a lot of emphasis on character and dialogue to characters in like the the standard Mario games that generally don't have them. You know, you've got Goombas and you've got Dry Bones and Shy Guys that have like things to say, and that in itself is inherently funny. And um, when you add on, like, you've got a Kamek that adds that works as uh, Baby Junior's uh, Bowser Junior's um, like a mentor or guard, and he's also a groundskeeper. Uh, you've got like there's these different cafes that you can find that are ran by like Coopers, or whatever, and they talk about, hey, do you want a cup of Joe and blah blah blah. And all these just ridiculously, um, just ridiculous situations that these characters and minions are in, um, that compounded with the fact that that on its own is funny, but the writing throughout is very, very funny and very sharp. And, you know, it has a, a number of laugh out loud moments. Um, like every time that you find a toad, it'll have some zany one liner that could be like related to the current predicament that you're in. Um, so, you know, constantly throughout the game, I, I was chuckling away to myself. Um, but I think that the big thing, more than anything else I, ne I need to say, is that for the first time, for as far as I can remember, there was a Mario game, this is a Mario game that had, like, a genuine um, emotional moment. And, you know, like, Mario games, by and large, they're platformers, they're action-based, they're, they're not about story or, or, or that kind of side of things. And even the Paper Mario games, as far as I remember, like, they were fun and, and whatever, but I don't remember having, like, a real kind of, like, emotional moment. And there is a specific moment, there's, like, a, a, a character arc that happens that isn't particularly long, but it goes in one direction, and then it throws this left hook at you that you're just not prepared for, that makes you, like, for me, anytime I look at that character going forward, it's going to bring me back to this. And it... It was so incredibly powerful, and I was so not prepared for it. And then it has a, a song that plays afterwards that this will absolutely come up in Game of the Year. Um, that you could have, uh, I you could have fooled me into believing that it was made by um, the Final Fantasy composer. That name escapes me. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like it is absolutely like on that uh, kind of tier of, of what it's aiming for. Um, so, yeah, like, I've genuinely, you know, it, there are a couple of moments in the open world where, because the way that the flow usually works, that so you have, like, these five giant streamers, uh, and you need to go and find them in different parts of the world. And, like, these streamers are wrapped around Princess Peach's castle, so you need to go and find, like, the, the point of where they are to um, remove it. And then, like, at the end of it, you know, you go to the castle. And the way it kind of works between each streamer is you'll have... A big open area and you'll have like this elemental um uh boss that you need to find and then there's like the kind of big castle or boss battle that happens um at the end and that's when you'll find the streamer and there are kind of aspects or elements or times um during these open world areas where it does get a bit lengthy and i don't i wouldn't say there's padding because everything is there is meant to be there and like side quests aren't really there like there's only a couple of like side objectives with the toads and um there are like kind of patches in the world that you can fill in with confetti to kind of make a solid surface so um they're there and you can see like the percentage score of how many uh like holes are left or how much you've cleared in that specific area but they're not kind of crucial to the critical path 
So, you know, everything that is there for the most part is kind of integral to the game. Um, but there are a couple of moments where it did feel a bit lengthy. Like when you're out on the open sea, uh, kind of like with Wind Waker, where there's a lot of time you're kind of wandering around and you're like, okay, I just want to get to the, ne the next point now. But yeah, I, I think genuinely, I think it's great. I'm glad I got this over Ghost of Tsushima um, because, you know, that game looks very pretty, but it does seem very much a, a Assassin's Creed in Japan kind of game. So yeah, it's it's really really good. I'm I'm very happy that I, I spent the time with it, and uh, it gets a very strong recommendation from me. I mean, I really can't wait to play it. I I've seen so many screenshots and and stuff, and I, I like to pick out what you said about giving all of the Mario characters a real personality. It, it's just something that that doesn't happen. I, I saw commentary on it. I'm not sure who it was from. I I think. I want to say it was Jim Sterling. It might have been a review I read somewhere that just said, like, it, it really stands out, like, how much individualism is lacking from the Mario games. Because, you know, Italian plumber jumps on things and tries to save Princess, and there's not any real characterization. Whereas all the screenshots I've seen are just people saying, like, amusing things to each other and, and, and living and. and kind of just being like <laughs> not like humanoid almost it's like anthropomorphic humanoids um so yeah I, I i think that's a really interesting take on on a way to do a mario game and i can't wait to play it we'll move into the news for this week and the first things first it's one of those rare uh good news stories in terms of um a result for aggrieved workers in the industry. Uh, and that comes uh, with the news from Vice Games here. The freelance writers for popular visual novel collection Lovestruck have won a significant pay increase from their publisher Voltage following a strike that lasted 21 days. So um, this was a publisher that, that brings out this visual novel collection called Lovestruck. They hire largely freelance contracted staff. Um, and they were earning somewhere in the neighborhood of, what was it, uh, 3.5 cents per word that they wrote um, for these visual novel collections. Uh, they went on strike saying that wasn't nearly enough because a lot of these freelancers that were working on this collection were using this income as their primary means of income. And obviously with the world gone to shit the way it is, that is not enough to sustain a living. So they went on strike for 21 days. And uh, lo and behold, for once, uh, it worked out well for the workers, brilliantly enough, and their pay has gone up to about 6.5 uh, cents per word. The pay increases won as a result of the strike range from 66 to 94% uh, from person to person. Um, what's great as well, that adds another layer to this of the warm, fuzzy feeling I get hearing about a successful industrial action is that all the workers who won these raises are either women, non-binary and or LGBTQIA and write interactive romance novels for them. So um, a, a lot of wrongs being righted there. And I think uh, particularly in a week, a year and just an industry, industry in general, that is uh, bad news top to bottom, usually a few of which we are going to be getting to later in this program, gentlemen. Um, it's nice to uh, get one of these stories where uh, workers were aggrieved and they, they got what they wanted. Yeah, I mean, it's like, as, as you noted, we'll, we'll be talking about something a little bit later on. But um, industry, the, the video game industry and, and companies, um, you know, 
they make a lot of money and a lot of that money does not end up in the hands of the people that are putting in the most work which let's be honest is kind of how capitalism works in general uh which is a cruel cruel mistress so um the the two the twofold effects of a uh these people getting those increases is excellent and also the the people in general um like these minority groups getting uh those increases is excellent news uh, i'm very very happy to hear that yeah, I, I think what you said about industrial action, Dave, is it's important because I, I do think in the coming times that are about to follow, uh, there's going to be an awful, awful lot of cutbacks, redundancies, people being stretched and, and made to do things that maybe they might not necessarily... Um, you know want to do additionally on top of their contracted times and hours and responsibilities so i do think that that i would like to see a culture of everyone being together and and not being exploited by these these big companies um and this is a good example and a good poster for everybody to see that if everyone does stick together and no one kind of breaks ranks in it or or tries to sidle off and and do this that and the other thing that they can achieve something if they stay together um we are we are one and you know that's the important part to remember i think yeah here he is reciting nexus theme song lyrics (laughs) on the program (laughs) oh god yeah thanks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> here's me thinking that i'm like trying to you know but be, be saying something really important but uh no it's just a nexus lyric <laughs> it's, it's just wayne barrett isn't it? yeah it is on way barrett um yeah sorry <laughs> um our, our next story uh it's a lot of the, the theme is financial this week on the show with the news story nintendo have an absolutely outrageous financial quarter so a lot of the bigger companies now are doing their financial earnings report to their shareholders. Um, and, you know, uh, you would expect with some businesses that like this is the quarter where COVID started to hit, um, that you would see kind of contractions and profits and things like that. But uh, Nintendo, not so much. Uh, they <laughs> year on year, this quarter is up in terms of net profits by 541.3%. Uh, for the three months ended June 30th, the platform holder reported net sales that had doubled year on year to 358.1 billion yen, which is $3.4 billion. Um, one of the strongest performers during this period was uh, Animal Crossing, which uh, the lifetime shipment of that game is up to 22.4 million. The actual sales, as opposed to shipping, probably closer to about 20. Uh, but even still, that puts it double the units sold by uh, 3DS is Animal Crossing New Leaf, which was the previous best-selling Animal Crossing game. And it also, I believe, is... Go on, yeah. I was going to say, and four times more than the Final Fantasy VII remake, which is just celebrated... Yeah, which just passed five. Five million units. Which, if someone told you that at the start of the year, that Animal Crossing game is going to sell four times more than the Final Fantasy VII remake, I would have laughed you out of the building. But holy shit, is it good to work for Nintendo right now, I'm sure. Yeah, um, it, it, it was outrageous. Uh, you also had strong performances from the like of Ring Fit Adventure. So it's, it's you can see the through line between uh, 
Animal Crossing, which happened to release around the time most of the Western world went into lockdown, and Ring Fit Adventure, which was a very useful game for people that were stuck in their houses for several months. And seriously, like uh, every time there's any announcement that Ring Fit uh, is back on shelves, it's sold out immediately. Yeah, like, it can't. St- I haven't seen it on a physical shelf I, I, in many, many months now at this point. Um, it is worth noting, though, this is something I put in that um, this could be um, what is often called a sugar rush in, in terms of sales. And I know, uh, given the nature of his work, I don't have to express to Jack the concerns about uh, being overly enthusiastic about this quarter. Um, like I said, these are the first couple of months where COVID was happening. So what sometimes you get is a phenomenon in economics called, I think it's front loading where the lockdown started everybody had everybody decided they were going to splurge on media to kind of keep themselves occupied so at the start of lockdown you would have had i know disney got a huge surge in disney plus pre-orders because that was coming out about a month into lockdown and things like that as lockdown wears on and as other countries start to come out and operate closer to normal you're probably going to have um somewhere between a moderate and sharp drop off in those sales. They're not going to persist or grow quarter on quarter um, in the way that you would hope. This is probably a spike from people that were like, again, like I said, this game, the, this game came out and Ring Fit Adventure became available and stocked in shops at very, very convenient times for this pandemic uh, for people. Um, I remember like seeing a load of people I didn't even know liked video games that I follow on Twitter or on Facebook that were just like, I'm fucking getting a Switch, you know? So uh, now those people have Switches and they have Animal Crossing and this may not necessarily follow in uh, to another quarter or, you know, I'd be particularly concerned when they go to this quarter next year and year on year, it looks like a disastrous collapse. Because it's not it's not going to be at this level a year from now yeah, but uh, I think, in terms of sales. And- I think they're smart enough, aren't they, to realise that. You see, they, they are, but what you'll often get is uh, investors and stockholders who aren't. Um, I know from watching, like, I, I, you know, I don't want to divert this into a, a wrestling podcast, but it, it has become very clear to me listening to uh, analysis of WWE's quarterly financials that a lot, a lot of people who have money invested in that company have no fucking idea what's going on in that company. No, not and Not a yeah, So there's going to be an awful lot of people with Nintendo stock that don't take this sort of shit into account. And next year, when the revenue year on year craters by comparison, even though it'll still be good under normal circumstances, it will just be cratered in comparison to this aberration. You will get some investor panic and a stock drop and, you know... There is going to be a, a recession in this industry before long. You know, it, we are stimulated at the moment by people, like I said, front loading on media at the start of this. But as this crisis worsens and as more and more people become unemployed and have less and less disposable income, the amount of money that's funneling into the video game industry is going to slow down. Um, and there is going to be some sort of a, hopefully only a moderate recession and not a full blown crash. Um, hopefully some of the big companies are, are, are smart enough to have their, their kind of rainy day contingencies, but I can see this as the, 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 uh, the calm before the storm in some ways. So even though 
hoorah, you know, for the hardworking people at Nintendo if they've done very well this quarter. But at the same time, um, don't take your eye off the ball. It 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 could this could all grind to a halt very quickly. I think. Doctor Dave's Doom forecast. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you see it so many times in other industries, and the problem with video games is that, like, over the last since the actual big Atari crash, um, it is a popular uh urban legend in the industry that video games are recession proof um and the exact types of industries that believe themselves to be recession proof are the ones that absolutely collapse in on themselves eventually because they don't think it could ever happen to I them i guess the only difference now is that because of digital sales it it, it doesn't ha- it means there's not as much of an outlay there's not as much of an expenditure on on physical media so if you have a bunch of stock out there um Speaking as a person who who is a forecaster who sends stock to places uh, for a company, if you've got a lot of stock out there that's kind of not selling, then you have to start thinking about price action and you know whether or not you can afford to do this, that, and the other thing with it because it does just occupy a space in stores. And you know you can put things into sales and stuff like that, but then it. it very much because you're immediately devaluing your your profit margins and stuff while you're doing that and also potentially devaluing your brand so if you have a game that's you know 40 40 dollars uh or the 70 dollars or 40 pounds or, or whatever the equivalent is and you know it comes down to 25 after a, a few months because you've bought loads of copies of it and you need to sell them then the next time a person comes around they're like ah well they brought that down in price last time so no bother so i think nintendo because a lot of that switch purchasing would have probably been digital that they're probably going to be okay but um like the in the tech case of the atari crash and stuff like that i think that is just losing a lot of money on like the physical value of stuff so yeah but also keep in mind like nintendo in general even their physical copies yeah. they don't devalue like they just never yeah. fucking I, go down I, I think nintendo are one of the companies that like even if they they bet on the bad horse and assume the good times are going to keep rolling they have enough like they have enough value and enough of the store of wealth that they're going to be fine. Yeah. They um, flopped. It's more. It's it's more that I don't want. I am, I am concerned about the cumulative effect of the, excuse me, the like the Activision reporting on profits and the Nintendo reporting on profits, leading people into a kind of laissez-faire. The good times are are going to keep rolling because we've seen it before happen that everybody thinks you know the. The, the rising tide is going to bring all the ships up with it. And then what ends up happening is that the, the floor falls out underneath everybody. Uh, and you're it's not going to affect Activision. Activision are going nowhere. It's not going to affect Nintendo. But, you know, it, if a crash comes, if a recession comes in the industry, it's going to be the mid and small tier developers are going to collapse. What is, what is really interesting as well is, like, you've got... Um xbox and you've got the xcloud you've got yeah you've got the xcloud coming out soon and um uh, you know for all intents and purposes google stadia was was a disaster but uh, i mean for me you know i i have no interest in getting an xbox series x one x i still don't know what the fucking thing's called but xcloud uh, and that combined with game pass is absolutely something i can see myself getting invested in and now i have no idea what the the economics of like these studios that are signed up with Xbox and Microsoft and, and the Game Pass and what kind of slice of the pie they're getting, you know, if I'm 
play, uh, playing like Carrion, for example. I'm playing it on Game Pass. I haven't per- I haven't had to purchase it. I just it's there for me available to play. You know what 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 finances is going to that studio for me to be playing it? Um, I, I I know that at least the way it was being done on this generation when people were talking about that kind of stuff publicly more was just like we will cut you a check. And we will have your game on our service for either the month on PlayStation Plus or three months. And it's obviously got to be some biting point in between the lost revenue from those people not buying it. Um, like there's there's got to be some sort of thing where it's economically advantageous for Sony to, to write this number on the check and it will get people signing up for PlayStation Plus. And it has to be greater than the sum of what this studio projects it will have lost by making the game free for X amount of time. So, the, and this is what has me curious then, because if xCloud is a success and like with the, from what I've seen about it and with the beta testing that's been happening over the last year or so, uh, apparently it works and it works really well. Um, you know, the idea that I can just have my controller and I can just, you know, get my phone and I can just load it up and start playing Carrion, for example, and carry on for my, carry on for my save on the, on my PC, that's a very compelling um, idea to me. And for what is maybe like a tenner a month, um, even in a recession, okay, yeah, I mean, for some people, that's just, just, that's just not going to fly. But there are some people that probably see the idea that hey, I can still continue playing games like I'm not going to be buying anything anytime soon but I have my phone and I have a controller I can definitely you know spend a tenner a month and I can play games this way and if this is a success um, and you know we'll, we'll see if, if Sony has anything um, in comparison you know this might be a way to I'm not going to say like future proof against a recession but definitely it could be something that could help um, with some of the stuff you were saying there about, um, you know, some issues that could be coming over the next year or so. Mm, for sure. Um, in terms of um, companies that are kind of capitalizing, perhaps, uh, on uncertain financial times, this is something I, I saw in, in the news this week, which uh, piqued my interest. There's a, a kind of a company called Enthusiast Gaming, which is one of those companies that is basically structured to acquire other companies, uh, which produces its content for it. Um, so Enthusiast Gaming, it, it acquires Omnia Media, um and i'll just read from gamesindustry.biz here uh it acquired uh it from blue ant media for 15 million dollars canadian so 11.2 million dollars american um Omnia Media is a YouTube gaming network that includes over 30 weekly shows and represents over 500 different gaming influencers and which recently saw revenue of 59.9 million in revenue for the 12 month period ending August 31st, 2019. Uh, this is a, this is something we kind of, you know, the, the cycles and the way media has been moving where like the traditional way media was structured was a lot of big companies producing the vast majority of media out there. Uh, the internet arrives and the democratization of media where you have a lot of small creators uh, making a success of things by themselves. And then in recent years, you have uh, there was one wave of it where things kind of collapsed. Like I remember Defy Media was one of these companies that was going around and buying up things. Defy Media was one of the ones that, that collapsed a couple of years ago. Um, but Omnia Media now and me 
uh, or sorry, uh, Enthusiast Gaming now for a company I had never really heard of. They own this Omnia Media, which again is responsible for uh, 30 weekly shows and 500 different gaming influencers. Uh, the roster that they have now is Destructoid, which, you know, uh, a noted publication. Nintendo Enthusiasts, which is one of the more popular uh, Nintendo-focused sites on the internet. And The Escapist, uh, as well as an esports division of its company called Luminosity Gaming, which I, I had heard of as well, but obviously I'm not an esports guy. Um, it's one of those things, guys, where, uh, like I said, um, you're going to get this this situation a lot over the next kind of six, 12 months where some of the smaller independent companies uh, can't function by themselves anymore and end up getting kind of collectivized by these bigger kind of monstrous companies or you have a situation where maybe a, a gaming youtube network like this isn't cutting the mustard uh, or the company that already owns it is trying to sell off some assets to keep itself above water uh do we have any thoughts on this it feels like uh we're going to we're at that point of the cycle where we're rapidly going back to a, a real gap between independent creators and corporate media now yeah, I think a lot of the video games journalism, I guess with the exception of Giant Bomb, because is it C CBS that own them? C they're, yeah, they're, def they're a division of CBS Interactive. Right. A lot of the gaming uh, journalism that I enjoy is, is like YouTube-based stuff and podcasts, and a lot of them are independent, um, you know, much like ourselves, if we can class ourselves in, in that sort of thing. Uh, that said, I I would like to be bought for eleven million dollars if anyone. <laughs> I tell you what, that would be pretty great. Yeah, imagine it was like the dot com bubble, like in the late nineties, where everyone just started buying up video game podcasts and hosting them. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> so they throw me off the rails. I started imagining a situation like where we got super rich and all started hating each other. Uh, like Mark had his own posse in the corner. Dave got like really into sports cars, and I developed a severe cocaine habit. Um... <laughs> I don't mind telling you guys, you're two of my best friends, and I would sell you down the river for eleven million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I would bludgeon you to death for eleven million dollars. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, I. I. So I. I think I'm already in that sphere. Really. I. I feel very. There was a notable change on, say, like, you brought up The Escapist. There was a notable change on The Escapist when... I, I can't remember which company it was that acquired them before the more sound company that owns them now acquired them, where all of the people started ebbing away and all of the stuff that I liked about it, it just started feeling soulless. I find IGN a very soulless website as well. Places yeah, like they... these big mega conglomerates... I. I quite like the ramshackle feel of journalism. Like we mention him, and I'll mention him a lot. I I love Jim Sterling so much because he exists in his own universe. He plays to his own fan base, and I think things like Patreon uh, and and a kind of other services now give these independent creators their own platform like we both love talking simpsons dave me and you and those guys that's their full-time job they earn enough money from it that they can pay themselves a decent living that's that said though i i will only counter with this point and that is that like a lot of patreon creators in the game space have found 
uh, the ground is opening up underneath them as this whole situation continues because obviously your Patreon subscriptions will be one of the first things to go if you lose your job over like bills and things like that. So <clears throat> we've seen things in the last month like speaking of giant bomb or related services um, you have uh, Danny O'Dwyer who runs Noclip had to sell his studio or had to give up the lease on his studio and pack everything up and move back into his basement um, because they just couldn't afford the rent anymore because the Patreon income had dropped and locked down. They couldn't even get into the studio if they had had that money. Or you have the likes of Drew Scanlon, who yeah. had to shutter his cloth map project that had been going on since he left Giant Bomb. One, because the, the subscriptions kind of dried up. And two, because obviously his whole thing is a travel show and a travel log. And you can't do that uh, at the moment. Um, so he's had to leave and he's gone back into uh, the game's development side of things um, now. And you, yeah, I, I would say that it's great, you know, for the time being. And I love Jim Sterling. And so it's funny because we mentioned Destructoid. So a couple of years earlier, uh, like maybe three to five years ago, Jim Sterling was at Destructoid. So he, you know, if, if times were different, he would have been working for two companies that got bought up by this same company. Because obviously he was at The Escapist as well. Um, before you went fully independent so like it might be a thing where for now a lot of our favourite creators are kind of buoyed by Patreon still being strong for them but I, I would grow more concerned uh, as time goes on uh, for some of these uh, and I know some of the more canny operators in the Patreon space have used Patreon income to kind of develop their shows and then work on strategic partnerships with other companies and things like that i know the one i'm thinking of in particular is like kind of funny who now even though their patreon subs and money like if you look at where it was at its peak versus where it is now it's like they have lost so much money uh compared to where they were at but because they have all these different partnerships and things like that it's like a self-sustaining business by itself and then the patreon is just kind of like helping with expansion and to to fill up the well uh of rainy day cash for them um so it'll be interesting like I, I feel like the patreon thing is vast approaching a critical mass uh because like i look <laughs> when i first joined patreon maybe i think two plus years ago would have been the first time i subbed anything on patreon and it was like oh there's one creator i know who's on patreon that i want to get in at the five dollar tier and now i look at my receipt on the first of every month and i think i'm subscribed to nine different patreons now that sounds expensive. Um, so, yeah, but you see, like, they're all $1 to $5 pledges, you know, so it kind of, you, you talk yourself into, oh, it's fine, you know, $3 a month, you know, what's that, what's that? But then, like, one, since they introduced the additional VAT charge, uh, and two, now that, like, so many creators that were either at other websites or free beforehand are now gone to Patreon, and, hey, look, make your bank, but for me it, it, it kind of reminds me of the you know when every site and every uh way of watching something has its own dedicated subscription yeah. service and eventually all that collapse and now you're you've got kind of your your prime video your netflix and your disney plus and that's kind of it in terms of the big big ones i know hbo max is is there in the states but it's not really here and yet Hulu, haven't they got as well yeah I feel like the games press or slash enthusiast industry will probably get to that point, as will the kind of podcasting bubble. 
Um, we're not there yet, thankfully, for those people. But I, you know, I don't want to say, oh, they'll always be able to make that kind of sweet bank independently either. So I can't, um, I can't begrudge them if they they come in with offers, silly offers like this for money. But uh, you're being quite, um, yeah, you're being quite a pragmatic angel of death, Dave, and in making a lot of these points uh and it's weird because i i feel like overly optimistic but i don't know i don't feel like it's gonna go down a huge amount i think i think people probably i don't know i guess it depends on what people consider essential to them but like of the little entertainment that i kind of have in my life um uh like that's in terms of the narrow focus i'm happy to pay for the stuff that is more narrowly focused on the things that I like rather than have something that's free in general. Um, yeah, what I what I will say to that though, Jack, is that's us, and we are painfully middle class. <laughs> like we yeah. are not going to feel the bite, at, uh, you know, quite as soon as maybe sixty to seventy percent of the world's population will. And I'm looking at you know the current crises that are going on all across the world, not just COVID. And I'm thinking like this recession is not going to hit properly until 2021. And it's going to be much worse than people think it's going to be by the, by the looks of a lot of the, what economists are saying now. One of the, the networks um, that I don't think it gets brought up that much, which is surprising because they are pretty prominent is, is the gamer network, which has like Eurogamer, rock, paper, shotgun, VG 24 seven. Cause like when people think of, gaming websites they'll immediately think of like giant bomb or uh, ign but like for me you know the, the most uh, the the news that i generally get when it comes to video games and you know when we pull stuff for for this feature like a lot of it does come from eurogamer and you know i haven't heard anything um from them about any issues and obviously we'll see what comes with next year but I've always found Eurogamer to be very uh, solid and consistent and not dry or soulless in the way that uh, IGN is. Um, doesn't really have much to do with anything we're talking about, but I, don't know, I like Eurogamer. <laughs> Just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Um, it's one of those, like, it's funny because you don't... Um, there are sometimes companies that you, you, you think, like Eurogamer, that I think unless you looked close enough, you would think to yourself, oh, maybe they, like, they are independent. You're just, oh, no, they're owned by somebody as well. Um, and some sometimes you get these publications that are passed around from one owner to another. Like even, you know, Jack mentioned them earlier on in the story, but IGN, who are big and soulless now, because I think a lot of their people who wanted to push more personality-driven content fucking left uh for myriad reasons that have been in the press lately uh and many others besides but also because corporate culture doesn't really allow for individuality very often even though in in, in games media it is often a, a unique selling point uh for coverage like IGN to me was at its uh, in in its heyday and its pomp when there were like a half dozen to a dozen identifiable editors or personalities on on that website that you could go to for a reliably entertaining kind of content um yeah it's it's just it's an interesting thing to watch uh that the patterns in how the kind of uh corporate culture in gaming is working and how uh, companies are banding together either to be sold or to survive um but look, um, that's a lot of financial news. We didn't even get into the half of it. There is way more to discuss, but we're just at about the two hour mark here. So I think we'll we'll draw a line underneath it and come back to financial news part two 
uh, next week on the program. Uh, that's going to do it for another episode of Link to the Cast. Uh, at Link to the Cast on Twitter is where you need to go to keep up with the latest shows as they're posted and to interact with us. Uh, what do you think? Do you want to talk uh, forecasting and financial projections with myself and Jack all day long? <laughs> I, I do apologize about the rabbit hole we got into on that shit. Um, or do you want to uh, chat to us about maybe you thought Paper Mario was shit and you want to have it out with Mark or maybe you think uh, Fall Guys is the future of esports what uh, happened with that jukebox on Happy Days that's what I want people's takes on like how did he do that with his oh. elbow <laughs> Get, yeah find us the mechanics I, I'm sure there must have been a Mythbusters episode on that back in the day that feels like a thing that they would have yeah. done um Anyway, yeah, uh, at Link to the Cast, I'm at the day to Dave. Mark is at Mark Robinson X2. Jack is at Jack. Before Blazer. we close, uh, is this the show where we have jumped the shark? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate uh, Henry Winkler being a man who jumped the shark quite literally twice in his career, did it in Happy Days, and then did it again in Arrested Development to, to reference jumping the shark the first time. Yeah. Uh, I like how Henry Winkler times. went from the coolest guy in the universe to late period, just basically playing nerds and loners and weirdos. But so weird that he's the coolest guy in the universe all over again. <laughs> yeah, he's just he's just a cool guy, isn't yeah. he? <laughs> anyway, on that note, we love you, Henry Winkler. That's been linked to the cast. We'll see you next week. Have a Winkler and bees. <laughs> <laughs>